You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I feel like you're a bit of a gamer, right? Like you like playing games. Is that fair to say? I do, particularly mind games. I think those are very fun. <laughs> like right now we're playing one. Interesting. Word association's fun. I just had like John Lennon obsession, uh, you know, flashbacks to like middle and high school. <laughs> That's very interesting. Speaking of John Lennon, there's a movie uh, about what happens if what happens in the world if only one guy's remember the Beatles. It sounds really mm-hmm. interesting. This has nothing to do with gaming, though. But again, no, this is just all. the game we're, we're playing right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is a game, right? And there, if you think about the game, is the game over? Mm. Sorry, I was into a game like that once where every time you thought about the game, you lost the game. And then you had to announce that you lost the game. Right, if, right. Well, the, pr- the parameters of any game are always interesting. And I'm sure some games don't have parameters, right? Like we all play games with our friends, right, in a variety of ways. We play games on like road trips, to keep ourselves oh, busy. Yeah. No, it's fun to kind of like discover the rules. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things like when I did improv, we would uh, for like practice sometimes, we would just create a game and we wouldn't know the rules until someone broke it. And it right. was really interesting. Then those are the rules you're playing by. And we had to create a couple different rules as the game kind of increased. It was weird and so much fun. So I actually created a card game this last weekend. Yeah. Um, we were we kind of went to like a wooded area, which is not very typical for me. You know, I'm I'm love being in the city. The game is called Resolution. I'm gonna copyright this, and there is a really cool part of the game where you have to chant scarcity in like a whisper. Um, and so it's very like I really was into like making the game kind of strange. And I told newcomers that that the key to the game was following the cultural norms. That was my only introduction. And then they had That's to kind of watch what we That's interesting. That's similar to what we did in improv. Again, we just kind of like created this game where, again, the only time you knew the rules is when you broke it, similar to creating your cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Where are we going with this, Michael? That's a really good question. We have a, a really fun guest on today, uh, Antero Garcia, who's going to talk to us a bit about gaming. Antero, let's introduce you into the podcast. How are you doing and what's going on? Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Ontario. I'm doing good. Uh, I'm muddling over all of the gaming ideas that both of you are thinking about, the what is a game. I've been chanting uh, scarcity silently <laughs> to myself uh, throughout all of this. It's so, a great I'm game. I'm, gonna t- I'm happy to teach both of you. Excellent. I think that's what we should do with the rest of our time. It sounds great. It does sound fun. Do you mind telling us a bit more about yourself and your background in education? Yeah, I am currently an assistant professor at Stanford University in the Graduate School of Education and primarily study literacy stuff. I'm a former English teacher and I also study civic stuff. And usually those two things go together with what I think about. For me, that usually involves thinking about things like games and what does it mean to play a game and how does that change people's identity? I bet we'll probably get into some of that with today's conversation. But I used to be a high school English teacher in Los Angeles. I did that for about eight years before getting a PhD and leaving. And now I'm soft and I wake up at eight in the morning and could never probably hack it in the classroom. Oh, man recognize the weaknesses of getting old now <laughs> you've gotten soft and tarot that's right yeah i'm not going to tell you guys what time i usually get up i'm even softer <laughs> 5 30 man 5 30 
So, and Tara, I read your biography ahead of time, and you've done some, it seems like you've done some really cool work around creating a whole school with kind of a mission. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah. So I co-created it, right? Like this wasn't just a, this wasn't a single person endeavor. The The prelude into that, the short story is I was doing work around designing uh, a genre of games called alternate reality games for my high school English classroom, right? So they're games that were about social change and trying to imagine, tell stories, kind of some of the improv work, Michael, that you were talking about. And then some of the principles around that led into uh, a grassroots effort of opening up a high school. It's called the Critical Design and Gaming School. It's a public high school in South Central. It's still operating today. And some of the key ways to think about what does being a game maker and a game designer mean in terms of liberatory approaches to education, particularly for historically marginalized youth of color in, in that community. Can I just also ask, so what, what went into helping co-create a school like what was the process i mean it was it a, did you wake up one day did people approach you with this idea how did how did that happen because you can't just wake up at 8 a.m roll out of bed and create a school right no i mean back then it was 7 a.m right that was uh so that's that's the difference right is if you want to do something you gotta wake up before eight this was not something that i started in terms of the the vision for this this was there was a group of several the, sh the longer version of the story involves LAUSD trying to fight off the charter school movement that has been slowly siphoning off of students, right? So in doing that, uh, we found some bureaucratic opportunities for teacher grassroots movements to organize work within the system to create new schools that were driven by community needs. Once we figured out the kind of pathways to do that, it meant working alongside alumni, community members, other teachers, and figure out what are the assets in the community that we can work around and work alongside. It meant things like canvassing on the weekends and trying to inform the community about what our intentions were. So this school, CDEG's Critical Design and Gaming School, was one of three public high schools that were opened on a shared campus. And these schools together, these three sister schools, have the name the Schools for Community Action. And so this was a name that was developed with community members, with students, with parents, and, and share some core values around activism, around commitments to social justice, around forms of renewability and sustainability within within the community. So gaming was one aspect of this. There's a community health themed school. There's one school that's around forms of indigenous entrepreneurship. And so these three schools together are still public high schools. They're still part of LAUSD, but they're trying to work within that system, hopefully for social good. That's really cool. The original purpose of charter schools actually was to be able to come up with creative, you know, right. different ideas for schooling. Uh, and obviously, kind of the privatization model is now what we often see. And so there's a negative association with all charter schools when the initial purposes were was more like this was to try stuff out and see how it worked in schools and and have schools that fit their you know communities and communities were helped to shape and so that sounds like a really really cool project yeah it's definitely a, like a i can't believe it's not charter kind of approach i think from lausd <laughs> in terms of you know <laughs> sure that they're, they're trying to build and trying to personalize the learning experience for different spaces and i think right to that original vision as much as i think i can be pretty critical about charters generally i think i've worked with some really, really amazing charter schools and, and organizations that come from i think what you're describing as like an original vision of what this work does. So I totally agree with that. Do you mind telling us a little bit of what your, what your classroom was like? So I, at the end of the day, I was, I was just another English teacher, right? Like I think I've written a whole boring book of, about life in my classroom. And so people can totally check it out, give it to someone for an early Christmas present. If you'd like, that's great. But you know, as much as I get to talk about myself as an autoethnographer and thinking about the research within and around my school space, 
you know, I, I want to champion the work and creativity and ingenuity of, of teachers broadly, right? So I can, I'm going to just take a second to describe my own teaching practice, but I just want to recognize that while the work I do has allowed me to do some publishing and work at Stanford, I don't think I'm by any means special in that sense, right? So, um, so that being said, uh, one thing that I think was particularly important within my classroom was fostering imagination and storytelling and fun, right? In terms of a conversation around gaming today, right? So like in an improv setting, a lot of our classroom was framed around questions of what if or how come. And, and so uh, allowing students to imagine what if our classroom was actually doing this other kind of work. And that would lead towards forms of play, forms of role playing, maybe doing some theater of the oppressed kinds of work, right? I think those are pathways towards things. I also am like a nerd. So uh, I helped run like a board gaming club after school with another teacher, right? So we'd play dumb board games with students and I would dominate at Connect Four. I just want to make a plug for my supreme Connect Four skills. These are very important assets. It's very important uh, for us to get that too. <laughs> so, yeah. Now that everyone knows. And so I think, you know, I'm interested in what does play mean? What does imagination look like? And as an English teacher, I think the role of literature is something that's always been really important to me. But this led towards thinking about, you know, how can play be fostered more sustainably as a, as a kind of maybe a pedagogical content knowledge for teachers broadly to focus on? First, I'd like to let you know, Ontario, that I kind of see you as a little bit of a threat to the whole social studies field because you're stealing a lot of our stuff. <laughs> Excellent. I, I think I think that happened the other way around, just to be clear. Uh, for sure. Literacy is actually like way ahead of social studies all the time. I feel like I actually complain because they're actually more oftentimes speaking more about like community involvement than we do have actually in like civics courses and things like that. No, but this is great work. And I love to see the interplay in like kind of participatory community work that has like a civic focus about how, how we improve our communities, get involved in things that make a difference. And you've done so much interesting research. I mean, first thing, you just have great uh, book titles. Um, which is, you know, if I'm judging a book by its cover, good job. Thank you. That's great. Is your most recent one the Pose, Wobble, and Flow? It's not the most recent, but it's one of the better selling ones. If I were to highlight one right now, which one would you say was most relevant? So there's one called Good Reception. That's about my classroom and about gaming in my classroom. So you've done some really great work. You have a variety of books, and we're going to link all of the books and their incredible <laughs> titles on our show notes. But one of the ones that really is relevant for the social media SIG of Sight, who is sponsoring this episode, is Good Reception, Teens, Teachers, and Mobile Media in the Los Angeles High School. Tell me about some of the work you did around mobile media, because kids have their phones with them a lot, and that's definitely something we talk a lot about, is the ever-presentness, the ubiquity of phones and social media and these things. So how did that relate to what, what you learned in, in your high school? Yeah, so that book stemmed from my dissertation. It was also while I was still a high school teacher. And so what that book was is the first part of it is taking inventory of what do kids do with their mobile devices during school time? We have a lot of the Pew data around what kids are doing with mobile media outside of schools, the connected learning research. There's a lot of outside data, but it hasn't been a lot of empirical work on what happens in schools at any given time. And so I spent a bunch of time doing focus groups and observations, talking to kids and trying to just see what are people doing with mobile devices in school? There's a lot of what I think teachers would expect, but I think there's some counter pieces to that. And then the second half is within my own classroom. How can I use those findings to shape forms of play and exploration alongside my students? And I think, as you mentioned, part of 
this was about thinking about co-research with kids. One of the models of research that my colleagues and I have engaged in is youth participatory action research, YPAR. And so that's just kind of the other space that I tend to think about in terms of how do we establish and share knowledge as a field, as uh, educators, as an academy. And so just one piece around the mobile media to pick up is I argue in this book that the ways we shape mobile media and social media policies in schools is completely opposite of what kids actually want, right? So the policy is usually something like during class time, focus on your work unless there's specific use for mobile devices. And during passing periods and lunch, you can use your devices. And at least talking to students several years ago, that's the opposite of what they want to do. During lunch is when they want to actually interact with one another, when they want to spend time being face-to-face in analog relationships rather than digitally mediated relationships. And so knowing that, this was a way to think about, you know, what do these policies mean? And just the other piece to kind of loop around this is these policies of don't use your mobile devices during working time are class-based social media policies, right? This is the policy if you are working at a McDonald's, there's a policy if you're working in the service industry. But if you are a professor, if you are a teacher, if you have a middle class job, you're usually trusted to use your mobile devices at your leisure when you feel it's appropriate, right? So the policies that we're putting in schools are preparing kids for working class kinds of work. So I just want to note that as a tension that came out from the research I was doing at the time. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And what doesn't make sense is the thou shall not rules that we do in schools. Kids never seem to follow those. What's the deal? Maybe we'll learn at some point that if we tell them to put their phones away, they're going to figure out a way around it. They're pretty clever. One of the most clever things that students did at my high school when I was teaching was they figured out how to access the announcements and they would start calling their friends out of class. And it was the first time it happened in my class. I was like, don't go anywhere. There's zero chance that that came from an adult. But like a lot of other teachers didn't pick it up. And I actually was just really proud of them. I was like, that's a lot of ingenuity, right? Like hopefully they don't go to jail for hacking, but like it's also a lot of problem solving. And they were probably in classes they couldn't use their phones and they had to get out. I mean, to that point, right? So one of the things I'm critical of when I was writing this up was the second part of this study, I gave one of my classes all iPod touches because they're basically phones just without the phone part, but they do everything else that a phone does. And they're cheaper as a starving graduate student. So I gave all of my students iPods. And in order to establish some kind of validity and control for the study, I put password protection so they couldn't install apps on them, which was in retrospect, the dumbest idea. And immediately all the students are clearly smarter than me. And it took, you know, hours until they put all of the apps they actually want to put on them. (laughs) So it was a useful moment for me to write up in in this work to say, like, look at it as doing in terms of the infallibility of teachers trying to control the cat and mouse game with students and look how smart students are in always being able to usurp the, the kinds of power and tools that, that we provide in schools. Just like the example of calling kids out of school, the students were able to do what they actually wanted to do with mobile devices, which I appreciated. And what did they want to do? So I looked at the kinds of apps that students were using. It's a whole bunch of academic stuff with that. You know, we, we produced stuff, we wrote stuff, we documented things, we edited our school's Wikipedia page. We did different kinds of authentic products that we developed within the class and, and across the school campus. But also students played lots of games, right? There are a lot of games that are installed. There was a lot of music that students downloaded. There was a police scanner that was installed on several of the students' mobile devices so that they could listen to what was happening in their community. Students were oftentimes writing messages or rhymes that they would text to me at the end of the class. And it kind of did a whole bevy of different things, right? This was before the kind of MOBA-style games like Fortnite that kids are regularly playing on today. Um, but a lot of Angry Birds at the time, a lot of those kinds of games 
games were being played pretty often. A lot of performativity of the kinds of screensavers or like background images that students would have on their apps to kind of show who they are. I think there's a lot of identity work that happens with mobile devices too. That's interesting. So in my school, we gave them all iPads a couple of years ago. And then I feel like we use them well sometimes and other times we don't. And there's a lot of frustration, I think in general with the iPads. Not saying that it was a bad idea by any means, but like there's like, they get them for high school and by the time they get to junior year, they're not as good as they were for their freshman year. And so it's definitely a struggle that we have with my school. Yeah. So the year I finished the study was the year that LUSD gave iPads to every student in the district. The iPads cost more than if you bought an iPad off the shelf at an Apple store because they were also installed with lots of test taking software on them. So you just kind of think about like, what do these devices mean when they no longer have the same kind of cultural capital that students might invest in them, right? So there's some tensions around that, at least in my experience, there's some tensions around this. Interesting. Yeah, we didn't do any of that. Uh, and there were some limits on what they could download, but then they were able to take those off and then download load stuff. Yeah, it was an interesting, and I guess it still is. Ontario, if you were to give your advice for like what you feel like you learned in kind of using mobile media, playing around with it, listening to kids, doing research beside them, what what are some of the, the biggest takeaways you had? I think my biggest takeaways, there's a couple, and one would be that we need to stop investing as much resources in the technology itself than in the relationships between students and teachers that could be mediated with technology. I think historically, we spend a lot of time investing in technology as if it will somehow fix the social ills of what is achievement gap or an educational debt, however we want to frame it. And I went in hoping that would be the case, right? We, there's like this magic bullet and it's an eye device. Uh, and that mm -hmm. just is the case, right? So I think that's one side of it. I think the other side is we're in this crucial moment where mobile devices are ubiquitous, but they haven't been for that long, relatively speaking. And so the kinds of policies we have just don't work for how schools function today, right? Like we're, we're in this place where mobile devices are a threat towards adult authority and power in ways that are unique to the current day and age. And so just banning them within classrooms just isn't a particularly healthy way or particularly responsive to what students are going to need to do outside of school, right? I think things like email as one kind of writing practice is increasingly irrelevant. The only email I get is usually asking me to do something and I'm grumpy about it most of the time. And so we can think about like, as an English teacher, what are new kinds of writing practices we need to be thinking about? Maybe from like a social studies perspective, thinking about how are hashtags a place where current events are happening and, and ways that we're organizing communities, right? So spaces are being reimagined. And so what's that mean in terms of classrooms look like today? Seem like big questions that I don't have answers to. I'm trying to play around with, right? Like I think there's a spatial dimension about thinking about what do we do when we're learning alongside these devices with students and teachers in the same space today. You know, Ontario, I think email is a good metaphor for some of the failures of technology. I've been on this rant for a while. I just feel like it's so thoughtless about the emails we get all day, the attention we're supposed to give to it. And like we lose massive amounts of time from teachers, from any industry. I don't know. I just feel overwhelmed by emails. They're a source of stress. So here's here's my academic solution to this. And you can join me in this academic game sure. I'm playing is I want to propose to my university that one semester I'm going to study my email catalog and like everything that happens, like what types of emails I get. But then in the spring, so it's for next year, and I could have, you know, so this could be several of us doing this research. I'm going to not be answering emails. So I'm off. You're just going to get a message that says Dan is not answering emails and we'll see who contacts me. And I'm going to document that. It's a research study. 
Does that I mean you it. won't respond to my emails? Yeah, pretty much. So can I bring up three points related to this? Uh, yes. So one is Dana Boyd, you know, internet researcher for a long time. Every year she goes on an email vacation. She's not the only one who does this, but I think she does it in the most impressive way where she basically says, if you email me for this period of time, your email is deleted. I will not get it. Please do not write back to me. Right. And they are automatically deleted and you cannot send her. You, you won't get she won't get a message during that time. So that's one piece just to think She's about. She's my hero. Just did finish It's Complicated again with my social media doctoral class. It's such a great book and it really uh, still holds up. But it's it. I think her views align with your views in, in kind of taking kids seriously. The work that led into that book was a big uh, push on doing the good reception book. Uh, particularly her chapter on Wikipedia was really useful. The second is I'm a big fan of Merlin Mann's framing of Inbox Zero, which I think now has just become like a punching bag kind of a joke. But you know, the ethos behind Inbox Zero is about being more mindful about what we do in email. It's from a kind of getting things done perspective, at least that's how I understand it. But there is something about a mindfulness approach towards email that's worth thinking about. And lastly, in terms of like joining you on this study, I love the idea of doing a virtual ethnography of email. It seems like an interesting thing to think about in terms of how do we map this territory? What does it mean to be a participant observer of my own inbox? I think there's some useful, playful identities to gauge in. Anyways, that's been email corner uh, of this podcast. I currently have 57,180 emails that are unread, and I don't know how to delete all of them because they're all from like Best Buy every day. Oh my gosh, I just learned so much about you. Unlimited emails and it doesn't bother you. It really bothers me. I just don't know what to do. Like, how do I manage? I'm pretty good at email. Like right now I have 27 unread emails at 6.37 Pacific time. And so I'm pretty good at email. I will confess though, I'm really bad at text messaging. So just like you were able to read that, I have 632 unread text messages on my phone right now. I have and so that says something about our relationships and being... <laughs> what we do with the information we're a part of today. My anger towards email says something about me too, right? Because I can't handle what both of you just said about text messages and emails. So, and I, I was like at like 260 emails and I went through, cleaned it all up and I'm at five right now. I'm really proud of that. And I tweeted about how this is the time to get your emails in. I will respond immediately because I want to clear it out. This sidetrack about emails uh, does, does um, relate back to thinking critically about media, mobile media, social media, gaming, and the roles it kind of, you know, plays in our lives and plays in our communities. And I, I really appreciate all the work you're doing and sharing. If you were to just talk to yourself, right, like as a high school teacher, after you've had some time to, to research this and step back from it, what, what advice would you give yourself, other English teachers, social studies teachers trying to be as cool as English teachers? What advice would you give them for thinking critically about these issues? I think critically and playfully can be words that sit alongside one another pretty nicely. And so I'd let myself feel okay about being wrong more often. And the traditional tropes of what a classroom looks like oftentimes are ways to thwart youth agency and youth empowerment. And so I'd want to think about like, what are ways where young people's voices can be centered in their learning and in their processes of learning? I think just because we're older and might know something doesn't mean I know what it means to be a young person in a particular community in February 2019, right? Or whenever, whatever the context is that we're, we're learning in today. So I think that'd be one thing I'd say to myself, right? But like, as an example, 
I'll pull this back to the email as an example, right? As like a pedagogical moment of like, what would it mean to take this email challenge, right? All three of us have different relationships to this device. Just like all of our students have different kinds of learner needs. Is there a way we could playfully engage in critiquing our email practices and somehow move towards some kind of shared example and shared practice of how we'd move forward, right? So there's an alternate reality game that's not at all about email. Uh, but Jane McGonigal, I don't know if she created it, but I remember she shared this example of a game called Killing Them with Kindness. And the idea is you are a secret agent and you're out there trying to kill other evil secret agents. And the way you do that is in the real world, the, your lethal weapon is saying kind words to people in public. The thing is, you don't know who else is actually playing this game. So the only way you succeed is just by going out in the world and being nice to people and like viciously being nice to people, right? You're both playing a game and you're doing a social good, right? The podcast Reply All has a debt forgiveness day that they do uh, once a year where it basically allows you to send emails that are somehow weighing in your gut. And so what would it mean where you can, you can send this email that you've been meaning to reply to for two months because you feel nervous and now you get to reply back because it's email debt forgiveness day. And right? similarly, are there ways that we could playfully imagine what it means to think about our relationship to a mobile device in the classroom, to email or inboxes in the academy and start thinking, hey, students, right, here's a problem of practice that we've all identified. What could we do together? What, this gets to the what if we did this, right? There's a thing that's plaguing us. How do we communicate around this? And so that's, that's one possibility. So we have an issue in my school with students with a lot of technology being used all the time, uh, a lot of chatting back and forth. What policy or, or how would you work to create a policy that would work well for my school? So, sorry, there's students at your school who are using the iPads that you gave them to talk to one another? iPads or their phones, uh -huh. a lot of the time. And, I'm, and I feel so, like this is a common issue, or not a common issue, but this is something that a lot of other teachers, classroom teachers also yeah. discuss too. So we think that's bad. I'm gonna say we, the royal we yeah. uh, as the academy. We think that's bad because students are talking to one another instead of listening to or focusing on adult expectations of what they're supposed to be doing. Is that yes, right? That is right. Yeah. I mean, I think that sounds like we're in the wrong here, right? It's, it's not an engagement problem, right? Kids are clearly engaged in something. So one, one critique is there's something wrong with our curriculum. We should start there and write and like do some ownership over this. And there's probably something wrong with curriculum in, a, in this moment of accountability as it's tied towards broader expectations and workforce readiness and all of these like big buzzwords, right? All of these trickle down into ways that young people are disengaged and what those mean in terms of their civic outcomes. I think that's one side of it. I think the other side is we haven't given students a reason to not put to put their phones away and actually pay attention, right? So what does it mean? And have we had a conversation with students about like, why is it so important to talk to this student right now versus doing this? Is there some kind of happy medium we can think about? And I don't know. Like, I don't know what the policy solution is. I also work with doctoral students pretty often, and they still drive me nuts in my classroom doing the exact same stuff that our high school and middle school students are doing with their mobile devices. But now they're just more savvy about doing it quietly or looking like they're engaged in looking at a PDF when they definitely aren't looking at a PDF. So I don't know. I'm struggling with these pieces, you know, with, with older kids as well. I feel like with, with older people, I mean, going out to like dinner with people, a lot of times people like going out for drinks after work, sometimes people put their cell phones right on the table and I'm always like, oh, am I really not that interesting? Would you rather be somewhere else? This is uh, Sherry Turkle talked about this in her most recent book, uh, mainly with, I think, high school kids, but talked about, you know, if there's a group of kids talking, at least two or three of them at any given time have to carry the conversation while everybody else is like tuned out looking at their devices. And so there's like shared burden of at least pretending like you care about being in this conversation with people, right? <laughs> What's it mean to just pretend to talk to someone? It's pretty awful. Right. I, I do like uh, our former guest in 
uh, episode 30, uh, Howard Rheingold, who's also at Stanford, was at Stanford, he had a strategy where he'd have these classes of 60 students and five of them were allowed to have their laptops out. And so the whole point of that was that they, you wouldn't be like selfishly just like ignoring the lecture. Like you'd feel some responsibility to be looking up relevant things to the course. And uh, it, the whole point was to develop mindfulness around why you're using it. I thought that was clever. Yeah, I like that. That Howard guy's a smart guy. Yeah, he is a smart guy. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, so I'm usually grumpy on Twitter. That's probably the best place to talk to me. I'm at Ontario Robot. It's like my name, Ontario, M-B-O-T, Ontario Robot on Twitter. Uh, and I occasionally post things to a currently dusty blog, theamericancrawl.com. It's mm. a place where other things get updated once in a while. And we'll make sure to link that and your page on Stanford and links to all of your books on our show notes. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope to continue this discussion online and in other spaces. So at the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative education, or you just want to chat instead of talking to the people you're sitting with, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And Dan, we're also on Spotify. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, in anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>